This is Reset. I'm Sasha Ann Simons. I don't know about you, but I thought it was Friday on Tuesday and Wednesday. But we finally made it. Now it's time to get some analysis on the top stories in our weekly news recap. Stories like these. With just five days to go in an extremely tight race for Chicago mayor, getting people to vote is more important than ever. This is the first time in the history of the council a vote was taken to select new committee chairs and revise the rules of the legislative body at the end of a mayor's term. U.S. Senator Bernie Sanders endorsed Brandon Johnson at a rally at UIC Credit Union One Arena. Now is downplaying his challenger's endorsement, saying he's being endorsed by Illinois Senator Dick Durbin. Former President Donald Trump has been indicted by the Manhattan Grand Jury. Our star panel of journalists today includes Kim Belware, national and breaking news reporter for The Washington Post. Welcome back, Kim. Hi, thanks for having me back. John Fountain is here, journalism professor at Roosevelt University. Good to see you again, John. Good to see you. Thanks so much. And Heather Sharon, Chicago politics reporter for WTTW. Good to have you with us, Heather. Hi, Sasha. Don't forget, you can also watch the weekly news recap right now. We're on WBEZ's Facebook and YouTube pages, and you can also watch the live stream on Reset's Facebook page. All right. So we do have to start with the stunning indictment of former President Donald Trump. Was anyone here surprised? I was because I think there had been a lot of coverage about how the grand jury was going on a break and they heard from another um, witness after everybody, you know, had sort of been braced for it. So at least for me, it sort of came out of the blue. And I think there was a little bit of reporting from The New York Times and The Washington Post that that even former President Trump had begun telling people he didn't think he was imminently going to be indicted. Mm -hmm. And I bet he was surprised, too. Yeah, there was there was a lot of discussion about how this grand jury was going to take a break, you know, through April um, and wasn't, you know, wasn't expected to have a lot of activity. It's also one of his nicknames, Teflon Don. You know, there's a lot of people who thought right. that charges were you know, really never going to come for him. Yeah. Well, I'm curious of your thoughts, John, and whether maybe you're you're worried that we'll see a repeat of January 6th. I certainly hope we don't see a repeat of January 6th. You know, I was... Um, a bit surprised about the indictment. I, you know, we all knew it was kind of in the loop, but you know, I, I think that so many Americans, uh, I'm one of them who is feeling kind of Trump exhaustion, and uh, you know, we've seen and heard talk of charges going to be filed uh, against uh, President, former President Trump, and uh, it's just been a, it's been a roller coaster, mm-hmm. and so now that it has finally happened, I'm. Yeah, I'm still shocked. <laughs> yeah. How, how do you think it'll impact the 2024 presidential election? You know, I'm, I'm reminded. You know, I think that there is so much about this case that remains to be seen. Number one, um, the indictment. What does when it is unsealed, what will it say? What will it reveal? But I'm also reminded, I think, in 2016, when uh, Donald Trump said, look, I could shoot someone in the middle of Fifth Avenue and uh, I wouldn't lose any support. I remember that. So I, I think his supporters are, you know, signed, sealed, and delivered. They're going to continue to, to support him. All the way. So, you yeah, know, we'll see. All right, let's turn now to the most pressing election for us here in Chicago. We're just four days away from the runoff for mayor and for several aldermanic races. There's a recent poll from Northwestern University showing that the candidates basically are neck and neck, with each one having 44% of the overall vote. The poll shows that 12% are still undecided. So, Kim, does it surprise you that there are still so many undecided voters at this point in the race? You know, it doesn't. In Just anecdotally, in talking to people uh, throughout the runoff campaign, 
uh, all over the city, there have been a lot of people, especially those in neighborhoods that swung the heaviest for Congressman Chuy Garcia and for Mayor Lori Lightfoot, who said they weren't sure if they were going to vote or or they didn't know. Or if they did know, there were a lot of people in their circle who were feeling, you know, still kind of on the fence. Yeah. Well, despite these leanings, NBC reports that about half of Spanish speaking voters haven't been contacted by either candidate. Mm. Heather, your, your take on the lack of outreach. Well, it's sort of this really negative feedback loop, right? Because some of the wards with the lowest turnout in the first round of voting were primarily Latino wards. So, mm-hmm. for example, you saw a turnout somewhere in the 20s where citywide it was almost 36 percent in wards like the 22nd ward. And that means that campaigns, which have a limited amount of money and a limited amount of time, have to prioritize where the most voters are and where they can get sort of the most bang for their buck. Mm-hmm. And, of course, that it's more expensive to translate campaigns campaign materials into Spanish, you have to make sure that you have people going door to door who speak Spanish and who are from that community can speak in a culturally relevant way. Mm. It is it is harder. So then it becomes this sort of feedback loop where nobody asked me to vote for them. So I didn't vote for them and voter turnout was really low. And, you know, I think that that is just another indication of the sort of the systemic inequities that exist in Chicago. I wish I had an answer for it. I don't. What do you think, John? I think that clearly um, one of the candidates is going to have to make inroads and they've got to do it really quickly <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> with the uh, with the election uh, looming. And I think, you know, someone said to me the other day, they said, um, uh, Lori Lightfoot, who isn't in the race, and, and Brandon Johnson are no Harold Washington, and neither is Paul Vallis. And, 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 and what I think they meant by that is, Harold Washington galvanized um, Chicago voters. And if you look at turnout on February 28th, and it was fewer, almost four out of 10 people turned out to vote, mm-hmm. um, I think there's a lot of voter apathy. And I think part of voter apathy has to do with folks feeling like they don't matter mm-hmm. or their, their votes don't matter. And I think that has got to change, not just in this election. Uh, but in the future as well. Well, on that same topic of of voter turnout, John, WBEZ came out with a data piece about how that could be the deciding factor this election. So I wonder how well you think Vallis and Johnson would be able to capture support among the voters who preferred Lightfoot or Chewy Garcia or Willie Wilson. That's the million-dollar question. <laughs> and and if they're listening, they probably want the answer. I don't know. I don't know um, how you do that, except particularly at this late stage in the game, um, how how you reach folks, how you get them excited. I think part of part of what has happened in other areas in the country, and certainly what happened with Washington, and and, and it's sort of echoed in in this idea of souls to the polls is getting people engaged and understanding that their vote matters and uh, and getting them to buy back into the idea that uh, particularly, specifically in Chicago, that this, um, who, who sits in the mayoral seat in the city of Chicago indeed matters in Lawndale and in, in, in Austin and mm-hmm. West Garfield and East Garfield and Pilsen. And so... Um, I think that is a uh, that's a question that needs to be uh, further <laughs> studied and maybe greater minds in mind. Uh, well, Kim, Johnson and Vallis, they're both running as Democrats, yet their viewpoints, they couldn't be more on the end of, of either 
uh, either end of the spectrum, rather. So I wonder what you make of this level of diversity of thought within such a democratic city like Chicago. I mean, does it challenge an assumption of what Democrats stand for? I think it definitely shows, uh, you know, the nuances within a heavily Democratic electorate in the city. And should that stance be redefined, maybe? Yeah, I mean, that's a it's a great question, because um, I'm thinking even in terms of public safety, that's been such a big issue um, of the race. That's been the central issue. And when you look at attitudes on things like public safety and police reform, even three years ago, that was so much stronger than it is now. So you see, you know, within the electorate, there is a lot of flexibility on kind of, you know, how how big is the, you know, hardcore progressive base versus, you know, the more moderate uh, Democratic voter, you know, makeup in the city. And, you know, there's also still about a quarter of people in the city that vote Republican. But, you know, I think it it certainly makes the decision, I think, tough for moderates who don't know, you know, kind of which candidate really speaks to those because, uh, you know, in several conversations with voters, you know, they kind of zigzag between issues that both candidates, mm-hmm. uh, you know, have a lot of, you know, there's a big disparity between them. You know, they like some of the proposals about um, reinvesting in communities, but, you know, they don't, you know, they maybe want a, a tougher on crime approach. And so that that makes it tough. You know, which one they really have and to make some pick? hard choices. Yeah. yeah. This week, U.S. Senator Dick Durbin endorsed Vallis and U.S. Senator Bernie Sanders stopped by Chicago just last night to rally for Johnson. Anybody think these endorsements are going to help these candidates? Well, you know, the, the rule of John's thumb... John's laughing. Well, I'll come to you next. <laughs> you the, first, the, the rule of thumb is that endorsements matter if they come with money or boots on the ground. Mm. And I haven't seen any evidence that Dick Durbin's endorsement has come with either one of those. Now, the, the flip side to that is clearly Paul Vallis is relying on people like Dick Durbin to point to when Brandon Johnson says my opponent is actually a Republican at heart. And that so is not 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 worthless. The the endorsement of somebody like Bernie Sanders, it you know, could be important if those four thousand people who turned out last night at the what used to be the UIC pavilion because I'm a thousand years old. <laughs> that's how I will remember it. Um but is now the Credit One arena. Um uh you know do they vote? Are they energized? Do they tell their friends, gosh, I saw Bernie Sanders and he makes me think a different Chicago is possible. Please go vote. So that's that's the battle of endorsements. But when you're you know, looking at a voter turnout of, you know, maybe above 40 percent, it, it really is going to decide, you know, who votes who's motivated to vote, and, and how that all shakes out. I, I, I don't doubt that either candidate would rather have, you know, an extra $200,000 at this point than yeah. somebody else putting out a press release. What do you think about these endorsements, John? I think that, um, you know, it, it's good to get endorsements, but, you know, I'm on the same page. Does it come with money? Does it come with boots on the ground? And particularly with uh, the election just days away, I got to say, though, this Bernie Sanders thing is, uh, you know, I was talking to some of my students about it. I said, why do you guys like Bernie Sanders? You know, he's old enough to be at least your grandfather. <laughs> <laughs> and they said, well, we believe in his message. And he, um, we believe that he is about uh, bringing in a new guard, bringing in changes. But, but, but he's Bernie Sanders. He's been in forever. And they still, you know, I, I think, um, you know, that said— any every vote counts. Yeah. So I think at this at this um, 
at this stage in the game, it's all hands on deck. This is Reset. I'm Sasha Ann Simons, and you are tuned in to our weekly news recap where we bring context and analysis to the biggest local and state stories of the week. Our panel includes Washington Post reporter Kim Belware, Roosevelt University journalism professor John Fountain, and WTTW reporter Heather Sharon. Don't forget, you can also watch us live right now on the WBEZ Facebook and YouTube pages. You can also leave a comment in that chat box. And talk to us. I just may read what you have to say on the air. (laughs) Uh, All right. So maybe it's no surprise, right? But the the people and organizations that are contributing to these candidates' campaigns, they reflect the priorities that each of the candidates is running on, particularly when we talk about school choice and education. Fill us in, Heather. So uh, Paul Vallis was really one of the leading architects of the movement in the late 1990s and the early 2000s to transform public school districts into charter school districts. Now, charter schools are public schools, but they're privately run. And Paul Vallis was really a champion of them on a national level, not just in Chicago, but in New Orleans and Bridgeport Connect. Connecticut and Philadelphia. And while he has said that he thinks Chicago has enough charters, his platform is really the only one that embraces that movement, which has really fallen out of favor with mainstream Democrats. Um, And that is why he has the endorsement of people like Arnie Duncan, who is also very pro-charter schools. And of course, he got a significant amount of money from an independent political group that is funded by Betsy DeVos, who Mm -hmm. was, of course, former president. President Trump's education secretary. So there is more alike between the education policies between President Obama and President Trump than one might think. And Brandon Johnson is really part of a movement that emerged not just in opposition to that, but in opposition to a whole host of similar political beliefs. So that is really why this has become sort of a battle over what proponents of charter schools will call school choice and what people like the Chicago Teachers Union Uh will call the defunding of public school districts. I'm going to stick with you for another moment, Heather, and turn to some interesting news out of city council. The next 50 older people will be more independent from the mayor. What happened? Maybe. I mean, that's, <laughs> okay. uh, you know, call, Sorry, call me, ahead of myself. Call me skeptical, but, um, <laughs> you know, the, for, for decades, the city council has functioned as a rubber stamp of whoever happened to be sitting in the mayor's chair. So that was true under former mayor Richard M. Daley. It was true under former mayor Rahm Emanuel. But that started to break down under Mayor Lori Lightfoot because she was spectacularly ill-equipped to not only make new friends, but she did a bad job keeping the friends that she had when she took office, which is why you saw a number of her handpicked committee chairs endorse somebody other than her for re-election. So that meant that her allies, after she lost, looked around and said, well, we're in danger, right? Because somebody else is going to come in and somebody else might want to put their allies in my spot. I really like this spot because people call me chairman or they call me chairwoman and I get on average an extra $300,000 to spend on my staff. And because the rules are a little bit different, I get to hire whoever I want so Mm -hmm. I can hire my cousin and my best friend and and that sort of thing. So that was part of the impetus sort of get together and say, let's let's make this decision for ourselves. Yeah. Now, the city council has always had this power. They just never felt, you know, free to exercise this power. So I think it is at, at least at this point still an open question about what happens after we know who the next mayor of Chicago mm-hmm. is. Does he come in and say, oh, that's real nice that you made those plans. Here's what I want. And do they fall in line I again? I mean, both Vallis and Johnson have said that they favor an independent uh, city council. 
right? So a lot of mayors want independence to a degree. And and that often stops at the water's edge because you can be independent as long as I don't care what you're doing. But if I care, then I would like you to fall in line. And just like we have a strong tradition in Chicago of reelecting mayors for, you know, 20 odd years Mm -hmm. at a time, the city council has no institutional memory or muscles to be independent. And they have traditionally not been a legislative body. They have been 50 tiny cities governed by, you know, a tiny mayor sort of exercising total control over that area. It's very different to go from being sort of the alder person of a neighborhood like South Shore and only focused on South Shore, but then being asked to sort of say, well, what sort of abortion care policy should the city of Chicago have? How much taxpayer dollars should we spend to ensure that people coming from Indiana where the right to an abortion has been severely curtailed, if not banned, what what amount of my constituents' taxpayer dollars should we spend? Those are two very different skill sets, and one most city council members are comfortable with, one will be we are entering into the great unknown. My goodness. So, Kim, does this vote mirror what we're seeing on the national scale? I'm thinking specifically of Republican lawmakers who sought more independence from leadership, and uh, this is when they're choosing like the Speaker of the, the U.S. House of Representatives. Republican lawmakers won major concessions from Speaker Kevin McCarthy uh, that gave them more power. So I'm talking things like lowering the number of lawmakers required to call a no-confidence vote and getting more time to review legislation before voting on it. Well, I think you're seeing across the country definitely, um, especially where uh, Republicans might have made gains in, uh, you know, at the at the local level. They're going to try and, um, you know, reform the rules a little bit or take back some of that power so they can act with, you know, more independence. Um, the makeup of the city council, I think Heather probably would be more dialed into this, but um, you know, it seems like it has certainly retained a lot of its more. Uh, progressive members. Mm-hmm. It's, it looks like it's getting younger too, a little bit. So yeah. you know, um, kind of tossing back to what's what's happening here. You know, how much will that independence remain? But you know, the other thing is that um, the city council just fundamentally doesn't seem to have the same uh, makeup that it once did, where you had a really strong mayor who had a lot of you know patronage opportunities. Now it does seem like there's something to be gained if if uh, city council members can you know, flex a little more Mm. of their independent muscle. Weakening the the next mayor's powers. John, final thoughts from you before we we take a pause. I mean, have we seen a movement like this before in Chicago? I can't remember. And I'm probably older than anybody (laughs) in here. I was born in 1960. And I... Yep. I confirm. I get I get the cake. (laughs) Um, You win. But I, 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 I don't think I have. You know, I am used to the to the old city, blustery, windy city of Chicago that, uh, you know, where there is uh, lots of, um, you know, political bluster and that the person who sits in the seat in the mayor's office is the one who rules. They're the boss. Yeah. And uh, so this this idea of, of an independent city council, I'm like, where where's that? <laughs> <laughs> I'd like to see it. And, and, and I think that. Having an, a more independent city council, I think, again, speaks to something I said earlier about getting folks who live beyond, um, you know, City Hall, beyond the Gold Coast, who yeah. live in what I call the Cold Coast, to buy in and to, to feel like they have a stake in the city and that uh, the city cares about them and their needs and issues as well.
Well, and to, you know, also go off of John and Heather's points, just a reminder, you know, Chicago has so many more um, aldermen, you know, proportionally than a lot of other major cities, you know, so everybody has their own little fiefdom. You don't <laughs> quite have. I mean, that's why it's so unique to us in some ways. <laughs> well, we'll leave it there. But don't go anywhere. We will continue our analysis of the top stories across the city and state with our panel of all-star journalists just ahead. I want to give some love to Heather Sharon because it's happening on YouTube right now. Chicago 675 <laughs> says, Heather is always so spot on in Mom, her analysis. Mom, is that you? <laughs> <laughs> Thankful she's a reporter in this city. Oh, well, thank you. This is Reset. I'm Sasha Ann Simons. We are back with more of our weekly news recap. Before the break, we covered the latest on the mayor's race and the city council voting to declare its independence. But there's much more news to get to. Stories like these. Defense attorneys are getting their first chance to cross-examine a star government witness in the bribery trial of four former ComEd executives and lobbyists. The U.S. government attempts to make its case, its bribery case, against the so-called ComEd Four. This was a long, hard fight to get this Asian majority ward. When you ask for a majority ward, you're asking for representation. And in the runoff, appeals to representation alone may not win Lee's case. Our panelists today, Heather Sharon, Chicago politics reporter for WTTW, Kim Belware, national and breaking news reporter for The Washington Post, and John Fountain, professor at Roosevelt University. You can also watch the weekly news recap right now. We're on WBEZ's Facebook and YouTube pages. Folks are already chiming in with comments. We've got another one here from Chicago 675 who says the move by city council for independence, it hurts Johnson if he wins, Vallis not so much. Uh, let's jump to aldermanic races, Heather. At this point, 14 seats are open as wards prepare to vote for their next alder person. Now, before we dive into the races themselves, I do want to talk about campaigning. Mm-hmm. We've seen groups across the political spectrum, like the Get Stuff Done PAC, Political Action Committee, uh, the United Working Families, they're pouring thousands of dollars into these city council races. So have these political groups been successful in actually getting their candidates into seats. So the Get Stuff Done pack was really created by former aides to Mayor Rahm Emanuel who were concerned that the city council was going to move to the left significantly. And in the first round of voting, they were not successful. They targeted Alderman Byron Sigcho Lopez in the 25th floor, and they spent literally hundreds of thousands of dollars to hurt his campaign and to boost the campaign of his opponent, Aida Flores. Um, Sigcho Lopez won relatively handily, uh, which means that they now have only one sort of main target in these runoff, which is Angela Clay um, in the 46th Ward to represent Uptown. So she is the last remaining city council challenger who has been endorsed by the Chicago chapter of the Democratic Socialists of America. And so she would be the seventh member um, to be backed by DSA to be on the city council. And she faces Kim Walls, who has a lot of support from the Democratic establishment. So that race has really been the focus of the Get Stuff Done pack. But as you said, there's lots of other money, too, especially Mm -hmm. from United Working Families, which is not only endorsing Brandon Johnson, but endorsed a slate of 17 candidates and had a relatively high success rate, including um, with victories outright by Jesse Fuentes in the 26th Ward and Julio Ramirez in the 12th Ward. So they're hoping to expand not just the progressive caucus, but really sort of the the very solid sort of Brandon Johnson endorsing progressive caucus. And that could shift significantly regardless of sort of the efforts by the business community. Yeah. 
Um, and, and I should add, the realtors have also spent a significant amount of money as well. I mean, John, as we heard, the, the Get Stuff Done pack, it, it spent over a million dollars in these races. Are you surprised? Do we typically see this type of money poured into aldermanic races? I don't know if it, I, I can't speak to that, whether this is this is typical or atypical, but I know that it is clear that, um, you know, that the stakes are high in this election and um, and they're doing it. And so it is um, um, I think it's something for us to note with new folks, Heather, you know, particularly progressive council members joining. How, how progressive could the next city council be significantly think? progressive, yeah. which is why I'm not sure I agree with our esteemed commenters comment that the reorganization uh, stands to benefit uh, Mayor Paul Vallis and not a uh, mayor, Brandon Johnson, um, because um, four of the new committees are set to be held by members of DSA, which would be uh, just a really significant shift in terms of sort of the ability of those older people to get hearings, to call votes, to sort of push those things forward forward. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, I, I think that the math for progressives and getting things like, you know, the Bring Chicago Home Ordinance, which would re- increase real estate transfer taxes to fund services for unhoused Chicagoans. I think the treatment, not trauma proposal. I think all of those become easier to at least put in the city hall spotlight, if not actually pass um, in this next term. So that is essentially what the business community is sort of pushing back against because they want they see those proposals as a very expensive and b not friendly to business and Mm -hmm. we can sort if we had a thousand hours we could talk about the truth (laughs) of those but that's sort of what they're pushing back but you know again i think that the electorate as a whole um is, is receptive to those and i think that those issues have really buoyed brandon johnson's campaign Kim, there will be a new mayor and a number of new aldermen joining. So what do you think needs to happen for them to work together successfully? Well, I think the new mayor is definitely going to have to strike a different tone and a different posture than Mayor Lori Lightfoot did. You know, she had this reputation as being someone who was difficult to work with, you know, who was just very combative. And I think whoever... The new the next mayor is might want to make a, you know, extend a little bit of an olive branch, show that they're there mm-hmm. to, you know, be cooperative, that they value independence of the city council, whether or not, you know, how deeply <laughs> they believe that. Um, and, you know, definitely a tone shift is going to be something to kind of erase some of the, you know, some of the bad juju from the past four years when it, you know, we <laughs> saw it was juju. a very explosive <laughs> city hall. You know, there's only, Heather, is there only one more? One city? more. One more yeah. under, you know, Mayor Lightfoot yesterday's was, you know, lots of, lots of fireworks. And, you know, interestingly, Mayor Lightfoot, she seems very, very done with it all. She kind of put out a statement saying, you know, it, it sounded, someone told, yes, told me yesterday, they said it sounded like, the lead of a both sides story where well, it literally ended with time, time will tell. tell. Oh, wow. <laughs> and, and, you know, this is really sort of a point of personal sort of, you know, frustration, but you know, it has been 58 days since Lori Lightfoot has held a news conference. Not in, that anybody's counting. Not that I'm counting <laughs> uh, in her official role as mayor of Chicago. And, you know, I think that these debates can often sort of seem very self-serving and I'm not going to deny that I would like the, uh, you know, chance to ask her questions, but the fact, of the matter is, is that she is going to be mayor of Chicago for the next 45 days. And I think it's a crucial part of democracy.
democracy Mm -hmm. that members of the news media are allowed to question and, you know, confront our elected leaders. And we just simply have not had that opportunity for a significant period of time. And I think that um, we are going to have to press whoever the next mayor is to make sure that that access is not curtailed as the way that it has been um, under Lori Lightfoot. I want to quickly dig into uh, a race here. The 11th Ward, Chicago's first Asian majority ward, an incumbent alderwoman, Nicole Lee, as well as longtime CPD officer, Anthony Saravino. They're going to face off next week. So, Heather, I mean, this race is interesting because for Chicago's first Asian majority ward, it could or could not see an Asian alderman representing it. Yeah, that's right. right. So, you know, every uh, 10 years after the census, the ward boundaries have to get redrawn. And part of the the real push was to create an 11th ward that unified Chinatown, which is one of the few Chinatowns in the United States that's growing because for many, many years, Asian Americans in Chicago felt like their political power was diluted because their votes were essentially split between the 11th ward and the 25th ward. So now they have an opportunity um, to sort of, you know, join together and express that sort of political power. And that pits, as you said, Alderman Lee, who was appointed by Lori Lightfoot against Officer Anthony Sierra Vino. And it's a really fascinating race because um, Lee uh, did not endorse Lori Lightfoot, even though Lori Lightfoot appointed her to the city council, which I think was an early indication that Lori Lightfoot was in deep trouble. And she has endorsed Paul Vallis, who mm-hmm. has endorsed him. Now, Vallis won the 11th Ward pretty handily because there are a lot of concerns about crime and public safety in the 11th Ward and among the Asian community, which is why I think that the that Officer Sierra has had such you know success in, in his race. The question is is you know do, do you know there was another Asian candidate in the in the race to do you know those supporters unite behind Nicole Lee and you know Nicole Lee is not just you know sort of the Asian candidate she has her family has deep ties yeah. to the Daily Machine which really ran the eleventh ward as the fiefdom of all fiefdoms and she has been campaigning not just with members of the Daily family but the member of the Daily family former Mayor Richard M Daly who has not been seen in public very often but. So for him to make sort of a public mm. sort of endorsement of Lee, I think, shows you sort of, you know, the signaling of the, the daily what's left of the daily machine saying, you know, she's one of us. She might look a little bit different, but she's one of us. Mm. John and Kim, any aldermanic races that you all have your eyes on? I'm interested in the 36th uh, personal bias there because that's where I live. Is that where you live? But, uh, you know, <laughs> you live in the pool noodle ward. <laughs> yes, Congratulations. I live, I live in the pool noodle ward. Um, you know, it's a very it's newly redrawn, very oddly shaped stretches basically from, I guess, parts of, I guess, the, you know, uh, parts of West Town all the way up to, I don't even know how far it goes, but oddly shaped. And, and that is another one of those races where you have the get stuff done pack, you know, spending money against um, a challenger, uh, Lori Torres, which she is a uh, uh, back. She's a teacher. Um, you know, has has kind of campaigned um, with Johnson, uh, going up against incumbent Gil Viegas, who has been getting a lot of support from the real estate community, mm-hmm. um, the business community, and uh, you know, he he doesn't have a big gap to close. You know, he won about forty five percent in the general. So, uh, but but the signs are everywhere. Uh, both candidates have been oh, out really? and about. They have been knocking on those doors. Yeah, I can um, imagine so. the mailers, all all the things. My mailbox is exploding. <laughs> I can imagine, <laughs> John. Any anything keeping you? No, I just like most Chicagoans, uh, waiting with bated breath. We'll wait and Tuesday. see. Yeah. <laughs>
Um, I do want to switch gears to the the ComEd bribery trial, which I know you've all been paying attention to. I'm going to do <laughs> do something a little different here first. John, can you give us sort of the big picture here? I mean, Illinois is known for political corruption. What do you think is at stake now with this trial? Illinois is known for political corruption? Yeah, I don't know if you've heard. Shocking. <laughs> I am shocked. I can't believe it. Um well, what's at stake here, I think, is um, what's always been at stake, the integrity of the state, the integrity of the county, I think, people's belief in the system and politicians and and ultimately the belief in, uh, in, in justice, which we're also seeing play out nationally. And so, you know, I've, I've looked at some of the uh, some of the trial and some of the updates, uh, part of the uh, uh, the uh, the secret uh, recordings uh, of the um, utility uh, exec uh, Fidel Marquez, uh, the, who wore wire, but all, and also a body camera to capture his interactions with uh, the four defendants. Right. Yeah, and uh, so it's 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 interesting to see uh, to watch how this is going to play out, and ultimately, you know, it leads all the way to uh, to Mr. Madigan, and um, so I don't know. Yeah. Well, let, let's get a little more granular here. We, we talked a lot about this during our, our recap last week, Heather, but just give us a, another quick overview of what this case is about. So on trial are four former ComEd executives and lobbyists, and they are essentially charged with doing the bidding of how, former House Speaker Michael Madigan, who has also been criminally charged but in a separate indictment and is set to go on trial in April 2024. And what the trial has done so far, and you know, clearly we've only heard sort of like the very start of the prosecution's case, is that they are really describing how it worked, how it worked when Michael Madigan, who ruled Springfield with, you know, an iron fist, said, I want X. And if you want me to do Y, you're going to need to get me X. And X, the prosecution alleged, was often jobs for his friends and associates and special treatment for his family. I I laughed out loud when I heard the testimony about, you know, um, Madigan's daughter's house suffering a power outage and the ComEd CEO being notified and told to, <laughs> to sort of get going ASAP on on fixing it. Wouldn't we all like to be able to make that phone call, right? right? right. Um, but I think that for a long time, just as a political reporter, the way Michael Madigan operated was shielded behind closed doors. You know, he did not operate in public. He operated on a need-to-know basis in the news media. He was clearly at the top of his does-not-need-to-know list. <laughs> so this is giving us a glimpse into how state politics and state government really operated for many, many years. And of course, the defense is arguing, look, this is just politics. This is just lobbying. This is just horse trading. It's not illegal. It's just how the sausage gets made. And yeah, it might be kind of gross when you look at it up close, but it is not illegal. And that's ultimately what the jury is going to have to decide. Well, before we take a pause, Heather, tell us what we could expect next. Well, we're going to keep hearing from Fidel Marquez, the, the star witness who, you know, was confronted. We heard yesterday yesterday on a cold morning by FBI agents who agreed to cooperate even before consulting his own lawyer. I feel compelled to say, don't don't do that. Mm. If the FBI shows up, it's always ask for a lawyer. And um, and we're going to see him sort of having to defend sort of his participation in this scheme, because, of course, he cooperated to avoid a, a lengthy jail time and a trial in and of itself. 
That is Heather Sharon from WTTW, John Fountain, journalism professor at Roosevelt University, and Kim Belware of The Washington Post. They're going to stick around for the rest of our weekly news recap. No, no, it is not done. Sit right there. (laughs) This is Reset. I'm Sasha Ann Simons. We are back with our weekly news recap where we break down the top local and state stories of the week. Our wonderful panel of guests today include Heather Sharon, Chicago politics reporter for WTTW, Kim Belware, national and breaking news reporter for The Washington Post, and John Fountain, journalism professor at Roosevelt University. We are still live on YouTube for those who prefer to watch. Let's jump back in. John, the latest U.S. Census data it shows that people are leaving Cook County by the tens of thousands. Uh, between the summers of 2021 and 2022, there was actually a 1.3 percent population decline, which is nearly 70,000 people. Your reaction? Where are they going? <laughs> <laughs> There, um, I think it was Politico that uh, a couple of years ago did a story about the exodus of Chicagoans in particular. And um, part of the reason that folks were leaving has to do with the number one issue in the campaign this year, which is public safety and crime. You know, folks who are living on the west sides and south sides of Chicago, quite frankly, don't feel safe. And I have to say that you know, it is it is quite understandable. And I think that it has to, you know, again, it, it you know, we talk about who is going to be the next mayor and what they're going to have to do. They're going to have to restore public trust. And part of that is to restore some sense of public safety and um, and deal with this issue of violent crime. And we know that mm-hmm. across the country, violent crime has spiked since covid uh, so Chicago is not uh, necessarily unique. But I think what is um, what strikes me is that, you know, having grown up on the west side of Chicago and having gone to some of those places, lived in some of those places uh, where people are having to bury their children who are shot, who can't play in the front lawn, on the front lawn, who can't hold barbecues because they're worried about gunfire. You know, I think they find it a bit peculiar that folks are talking about public safety. I mean, they welcome it, to, you know, to a large degree. But, you know, you the question is, why now? Is it because that the crime that used to be confined to black and brown communities has now seeped onto Michigan Avenue, mm. has now seeped into the Gold Coast, is now in places where we don't normally see it? And, you know, this idea that that you can control chaos, but you can't. And so... You know, they have to deal not only with 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 find a way, whoever's the new mayor, to uh, to to be tough on crime. But I think in Brandon Johnson's message, deal with the treatment in in as much as you're dealing, you know, with with, with the trauma. Yeah. And having some sense of of of. Knowing that this is a larger problem that is so much larger than law enforcement, mm-hmm. you can't solve it by throwing more police at it. Yeah, Kim, this was the second biggest decline among all U.S. counties during that period. Does this mean that Cook County could soon be the third and not the second largest county in the country, you think? This is a personal nightmare of mine (laughs) because I know that for years, Houston, um, which is in Harris County, Mm -hmm. uh, has been coming for us. There are about 300,000 people behind us, and that is one of the places where uh, people in Cook County are moving to, you know, notably uh, a lot had been reported during the 2020 census about how much of Chicago's population loss was heavily from black Chicagoans in particular. And there's a lot of uh, migration to, you know, places like Atlanta, places like Phoenix, places like Houston. So, you know, for now, it's 
Cook County is still a, you know, a yeah. major metro, but, you know, nobody, we like to, we have our second city, you know, reputation and, you know, kind of whatever that means in the county that we deal with enough, I think, um, you know, but to John's point about what, what it means for people to stay um, in the county, I mean, it's a countywide issue. I know that McHenry County had some pretty big losses, so it's not just what happens mm-hmm. in the Chicago city limits. You know, there, there's been a lot of return to cities, too. You know, mm-hmm. I think some some data has shown that there's been a post-pandemic um, or since the start of the pandemic, there's been a reversal back to cities. But, um, you yeah, know, like these people aren't all just leaving for the countryside. Like they are going to large metropolitan yeah, areas and going, you know, kind of intra intra county. So, you know, I, I don't know exactly what is behind some of the movement um around the city in Cook County, but, you know, at least for within the city limits, uh, you know, you have the candidates are speaking to this in two different ways. Paul Vallis is saying, you know, businesses are going to flee and it's going to, you know, mean an economic downturn. And mm-hmm. um, Johnson is saying that there's people, you know, kind of to John's point that that want um, public safety and resources in their neighborhoods. They need a reason to feel safe and a reason to um, feel like they're being invested in. And, and that could go a long way in, in maybe stemming that flow, that exodus. Yeah. One of our friends on YouTube, old and in the way, says the census data needs to be taken seriously. There are reasons people choose to leave. Let's switch gears, Kim. In other news, today's International Transgender Day of Visibility. Just quickly tell us more about what the day stands for and, and how Chicagoans are celebrating. Yeah. So this is a day that is really meant to highlight um, and celebrate the contributions um, and the progress of trans people in the U.S., particularly because um, with trans people often being the victims of, you know, of violence. Um, and, and certainly we've seen in the headlines lately um, being targeted by a lot of legislation around the country. Um, this day is really to celebrate and elevate in a positive light and not focus on uh, death, which is, you know, so often a, a you know, predominant storyline that yeah. the trans community, when they see themselves in the news, they see themselves um, often in those you know, sad stories. Mm-hmm. So around the city, um, there have there are a lot of events planned. The Chicago History Museum in particular yeah. is showing um, the, you know, the contributions and um, kind of the progress and history of trans figures in the city. Um, there are there's a few that I, I think the, the website might have. Yes. Uh, more details are on uh, at blockclubchicago.org. There's a, a great list there for, for folks to, to take in. Yeah. And, and I want to note, too, that last week, um, my colleagues, along with the Kaiser Family Foundation, put out uh, what a, a major survey, which was the largest non-governmental survey of transgender Americans. Um, and so that has brought forth a lot of data and, and provides more insight into a community that, you know, often doesn't get a lot of deep dive coverage about, you know, kind of how they identify um, what their priorities are and mm-hmm. how a lot of issues, um, you know, are, are shaping their lives. Let's get some good news into this recap, shall we? Uh, this is for sports fans. Major League Baseball is back. The yes. Chicago Cubs debuted a front. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> How do you feel about it, John? Yeah. Uh, Cubs. The Chicago Cubs debuted a fresh lineup of players during their opening day game yesterday. I mean, what do we know about our, our second stellar baseball team, the Chicago White Sox? And what about the dynamics of the team this season? The well, Cubs? 
I just I think we should all as Chicagoans take this moment, enjoy it and revel it because both teams are undefeated as of <laughs> this moment and it can really only go downhill from here. Yeah. Right. Um, you know, the the White Sox has sort of been in the middle of this sort of rebuilding, maybe like maybe it's going to happen and it never quite seems to you know, you know, seems to happen. But Tim Anderson is one of the um, most fun players to watch mm-hmm. in Major League Baseball. So, you know, it is a societal good that he is back on, on, <laughs> on, societal the, good. on the, the baseball diamond. And, you know, but this, this season's going to be really weird because there are a bunch of changes that are going to go into effect with the, the pitch clock and an attempt to speed up the game, mm-hmm. which I personally don't understand because you go to a baseball game to sort of slip the surly bonds of time and only, <laughs> only exist in a liminal space where you're shoving, you know, hot dogs. I in. want the time to speed up when I'm watching it on TV. Well, there you go. Not when I'm at the yeah. game. Yeah. So, so it, you know, hope springs eternal. It, you know, it, it is, you know, I, 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 you know, have yet to recover from the universe inversion World Series win of the Chicago Cubs in 2016. <laughs> um, and, you know, perhaps if they win another World Series, the the universe will turn back in on itself and, and right itself. Um, John, baseball fans have another reason to celebrate. The MLB Association reached a five-year collective bargaining agreement with players. So this is also the first contract that includes minor league players. I mean, how big of a deal would you say this is? Well, it seems to be a really big deal. I mean, it is the fact that uh, you can, for baseball players, live your dream and have a livable wage. And um, so it's that, a huge deal. That is excellent. And um, can, can, can I just say, there's only one team in town. Oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> What they're, team is that? They're on, they're on the north side. Do you want Sasha to get all sorts of angry chats? Uh, here come the emails. <laughs> Listeners, please don't email me. I didn't say it. Please. Do, do not it. at Sasha It was Simon. not me. Uh, don't do tweet not. me. And I have one dream. I want to stand in Wrigley Field and I want to lead the seventh inning stretch. Okay. <laughs> Speak it into existence. Yeah. Kim, I like Kim, it. You're a baseball fan too, I know. I mean, I'm I'm a I'm a baseball fan. I'm kind of like my mom in that, you know, I want everybody to win and have a good time. Aww. But I That's do, not how baseball works. I know, but I think the real winners <laughs> of this season are gonna be the people like me who, you know, are not going to every single game and not following every single play and every single trade. Right. You know, I wouldn't call myself a fair weather fan, but I, like you, Sasha, am one of the people who is excited that the game is going to get faster. Exactly. <laughs> Speaking of weather, uh, John, I hear you are our resident meteorologist today. Chicago's going to see heavier showers starting later this afternoon, part of a severe weather outbreak over the Midwest. What should we be on the lookout for? Uh... Rain. Yeah, rain, rain and wind. <laughs> rain, lots of rain and wind and thunderstorms Tornadoes. and lightning and all of that. All that patio furniture you put out on a warm yeah. weekend, yeah. bring it back inside. Charge your devices. Hail. Charge your devices. Yes. Yeah, well, this is how you know it's spring in Chicago, right? right. Oh, man. Like, it's not snowing, but we've got everything else. And I hate to end it on this note, <laughs> but we got to leave it there. <laughs> John Fountain, journalism professor at Roosevelt University. Heather Sharon, Chicago politics reporter for WTTW. And Kim Bellware, national and breaking news reporter for The Washington Post. Thank you all. Have a great weekend. Stay safe. Thanks, Thanks Sasha. Stay dry. Stay Thank warm. You. That's it for Reset. The show is produced by Meha Ahmed, Stephanie Kim, Linnea Dominic, Brenda Ruiz, Micah Yason, Claire Hyman, Michael Liptrot, and Andrea Guffman. Dan Tucker's our executive producer. Ethan Schwab, Dave Miska, and Haley Bloomquist were our engineers this week.